Hello and welcome to this week's podcast. We're so glad that you tuned in to listen with us today. This is Josh Carlson with Hilltop Community Church, and today's message is from our series in Acts titled Continuation. Now today, Kirk Atsorki is going to be teaching from Acts chapter 28, verses 1 through 16. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about Paul's ability to make disciples in all circumstances. So with that, let's open up our Bibles and let's get started. So we're in the first 16 verses of chapter uh, 28 of the book of Acts. Um, this message I've titled, As You Go, Make Disciples. Um, uh, now, if, if, uh, if you don't know a lot of Bible verses and, and you wanted to put one in your memory bank, Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20 is one that Christians should know. Um, and in those verses, Jesus has been raised from the dead, Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. He's been raised from the dead, and he, it says he came near to his disciples and said to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. And he opens that, that, that phrase at the beginning of verse 19 says, go therefore. And that means as you are going. It's essentially saying to them, as you live your life, make disciples. Um, and what we're going to see from Paul here is basically as you are imprisoned on a Roman grain ship destined for Rome that gets shipwrecked and lands on Malta, make disciples. As you then move on from Malta to Sicily and then into Rome, make disciples. Paul is, he is sold out 100% understands that this is his point and purpose of life. Uh, it's that he would find rest and peace in his relationship with God. Uh, and then through that, he would then be teaching people to follow Jesus. A disciple is somebody who commits their life to the way of Jesus. You say, I'm going to commit the pattern of my life to match the patterns of Jesus' life. That's what it is to be a disciple. I'm going to, I want God to cause the patterns of my life and the way of my heart and even my own identity to match Jesus' identity. I'm not a broken sinner. I'm in Christ. And because I'm in Christ, I'm secure. And he's made me his child. And he's called me to be his ambassador. And because that's who I am, I'm going to live my life daily with the view that it has the purpose of making Jesus known. And so that's what Paul is doing. Now, uh, what can come from a message like this time uh, sometimes is a sense of guilt for people. You could hear this and go, boy, maybe I'm not doing enough for God. Um, that is not the point of this message, to guilt you into thinking maybe I should be doing more for God. In fact, I think the first thing that you should do is find your rest in Him. But long before you ever try and take steps of action, you should find your identity and your rest in Him. And then once you have your identity and your rest in Him, He's going to stir in you desires that match His heart. And then He's going to give you opportunities to live out those desires. He's going to lay ahead of you good works ahead of time so that you can walk in them. And so you don't have to stress about this. Instead, you should have a sense of peace that God is guiding your days. He's putting in your path what he wants in your path, the people in your path that he already knows are going to be there. And so you don't have to stress about this, but instead rest in the identity that he's given you and allow your days to unfold as his sovereign hand guides. What that does require you to do is pay attention. 
And so as Paul is going through his circumstances, uh, the, the reminder of what's going on here in the book of Acts is Paul has been accused by the Jewish leadership of uh, being an enemy of the temple, being an, intimi- an enemy of Jewish uh, leadership, and also being an enemy of Roman leadership. They've claimed that he's a rebel against Rome. He's been tried four different times and found unguilty four different times. Uh, in the process, though, he's been asked if he would like to go back to Jerusalem for trial. And he says, no way. If I go back to Jerusalem for trial, it'll end up in the same false kind of trial that Jesus faced and my life will be ended. Um, and uh, furthermore, God has Jesus appeared to him in a vision and told him that his job was to go to Rome, not Jerusalem. And so his, his mind is set on Rome because that's where Jesus has told him to go. And so he's being transferred from Caesarea to Rome. This journey is mostly by ship across the Mediterranean Sea. And what Don shared last week is the boat transporting him was shipwrecked off the coast of Malta. And that's where we pick up the story this week. Uh, Malta is a small island, about 122 miles uh, in size, square miles in size, and about 85 miles south of Sicily. If you think about Sicily, that looks like what should be the soccer ball that's being kicked by Italy. And Malta is just a little bit south of that. The island was populated, Malta that is, as early as 5900 BC. Uh, The Phoenicians used it as a trading hub starting in the 8th century BC and they brought both Semitic language and culture to the island so the Phoenicians were sort of an offshoot of the Jewish people and so their language and culture was similar but corrupted. Uh, The the Phoenician impact on language and culture was evident during Paul's brief three month stay and where we are here in the time frame is it's late 59 early 60 AD. And then what we're going to see from Malta is that the Roman economy and deities will serve to move Paul the rest of the way of the Rome. That's the the great irony of this passage is that uh, the Roman economy and the gods that they serve will actually be what moves the gospel to Rome. And so that's what we're going to look at. And so if you pick up with me in chapter 28, verse 1, it says, once ashore, uh, once safely ashore, so the, the ship has been wrecked and now they're sh- safely ashore, th- they learned that the island was called Malta. The local people showed us extraordinary kindness. They lit a fire and took us all in since it was raining and cold. And so the first thing that happens is they they land on this island and the people of Malta care for the shipwrecked crew and passengers. There's about, excuse me, there's about 276 people that are being cared for. Uh, The word that Luke uses for the people of Malta is a word that means barbarian. It was used by Roman-speaking world of those who did not speak Greek. So the crew of the ship and the people there on it would have had a difficult time communicating with the people of Malta, but hospitality bridged the gap. And I think that is an interesting observation right off the bat. um, Is we Hospitality is often overlooked as a starting place to understand people and share Jesus with them. Uh, We often have a a a tendency to jump straight into deep conversations without knowing people or never have deep conversations and wonder why we don't want to talk with people about things that uh, are deep and we don't know the other person on the other side. And so I believe that each of us should have patterns of hospitality built into our lives. Uh, We should organize our finances and our time to allow us to be friendly and receive guests into our homes. Um, The other thing I would say is that Jesus practiced this and honored those who did 
the same. If you think about Jesus, he often would go in and eat with those who would invite him into his home. He was willing to say, you want to practice hospitality? I'm willing to come into your home. That was very anti-Jewish at the time. You didn't just go hang out with anybody. Jesus said, certainly I will. Certainly I will enter into your home and get to know your story and care for you. The other thing is that people that Jesus made a part of his um, followers, they were people that had the means and ability to welcome others into their home. And so there's multiple times where somebody that is one of Jesus's followers welcomes a large crowd of people into their home. They practice hospitality. They care for each other. It bridges the gap and it gives them the opportunity to then share who Jesus is. In this instance, it's actually practiced by the people of Malta. And what we're going to see is that uh, God uses this personal interaction in a way to demonstrate his power. And that's what happens in verse 3. As Paul gathered a bundle of brushwood and put it on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened itself to his hand. When the local people saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to one another, this man no doubt is a murderer, even though he has escaped the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. And that word justice is actually for the Greek goddess, excuse me, the Roman goddess Theke, which is the daughter of Zeus. If you've ever seen a picture of the lady who's blindfolded holding the scales of justice, that's that's Theke. And so they're saying that uh, this man must be a murderer. Even though the shipwreck didn't kill him, this viper is fixed to his hand, and this is a version of divine justice. He mu- there must be something evil about this man since this is happening to him. Verse 5, But he shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no harm. They expected that he would begin to swell up and suddenly drop dead. After that, they waited a long time and saw nothing unusual happen to him. They changed their minds and said he was a god. Um, And so some of the things that happened to Paul are wild. This is the second time a group of people have called him a god. In Acts chapter 14, he and Barnabas are mistaken for two Greek gods. And here he's mistaken for a god because divine justice, their version of it, did not happen. Um, and, and so, but some of the things that happen to Paul, are they're, they're weird. They're wild. Uh, in this case, they see Paul as, as a god because his recovery from the snake, snake bite flies in, their, flies in the face of their idea of divine justice. Luke's point here, the writer of Acts, is that, is that God sometimes uses unordinary me- measures to authenticate his messengers. Um, sometimes he uses things that seem a little strange to us to reveal his power and authenticate his messengers. God's power is seen in his protection of Paul. The people of Malta missed the point, but God's power is evident in Paul's life. And this can happen to you as a Christian as well. Maybe you're not bit by a snake and then mar- miraculously healed. But uh, God's power is evident in your life. Um, People see the transformation. Maybe somebody that knew you when you were younger meets you later on in life and they go, boy, something's very different about you. Um, And and you live your life in a very honorable way. And and, and there's there's just something different about you. And the transformation that's taken place, they can maybe associate that with your own self-effort or your own ability to clean up your life. And it's our job to make sure that we go, no, 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 this isn't something that came from me. Uh, The transformation, the difference that you see in me is because I've met this person, this God named Jesus who saved me from my sin and done away with my old way of life and brought me into a new pattern of living that matches his pattern of living. And so I'm not who I was, but that's not because of me. I didn't do anything. Um, I, I I just happened to be a recipient of God's grace. And you could be too. 
Um, Becky and I have had people say to us uh, with the situation where we, you know, biological parents of three and then another three boys in our family and we share that story and people go, wow, you're amazing. And we're like, not really. Um, If you left it to us, we would fail at this every day. Um, If we tried to do this in our own strength, if we tried to do this in our own ability, um, it would be a disaster each and every day. And so while we recognize that what we're doing is, is right and it's good, but we didn't even pick it. God just put it in our lap. Um, it wasn't like we were wandering around saying, I hope there's three boys we could adopt and bring into our house. We're not nuts. <laughs> but God laid it in our lap, and so there it was. And so we say, okay, let's do this. Uh, God, God led us to the situation. He gave us time to understand the situation. He gave us love for the boys that doesn't come from ourselves. And, and, and so because of that, we were willing to do this. But it's not us. That's the grace of God. We believe that we're vessels of God's grace. And so if we believe that, then we should live that. If, I, if, if my identity is a vessel of God's grace and I don't live that way, something's wrong. And so people can miss the point. But God's power is evident in each and every one of us if we're followers of Christ. And our job there is to take the places where his power is evident in our lives and then use it to glorify him, to make his son known. And so the island begins to see this. Malta begins to see this in verse 7. Now the area that that place was... Let me try that one more time. Now, in the area around that place was an estate belonging to the leading man of the island, named Publius, who welcomed us and entertained us hospitably for three days. Publius' father was in bed, suffering from a fever and dysentery. Paul went to him, and praying and laying hands on him, he healed him. After this, the rest of those on the island who had diseases also came and were healed. So they heaped many honors on us, and we sailed, and they gave us what we needed. And so this is an interesting thing um, in the book of Acts. When Paul goes to Malta, his time is noted mostly for the miraculous, prayer and healings, laying his hands on people and taking away diseases. Um, and the, the Maltese response is one of hospitality and honor. They, uh, they, they, they provide financial gifts for Paul. These are probably the same types of gifts that he's then going to use when he gets to Rome to rent a house. Um, so God is providing for what's ahead of Paul uh, through these things. But most of the time in the book of Acts, what we see with Paul is he goes into a city and he goes to the synagogue. And in the synagogue, he shares the gospel with the Jewish people and he proves that Jesus is the Messiah from the Old Testament scriptures, which really isn't that hard to do. And then, but that's what Paul does. He shows how the Old Testament pointed to a suffering Messiah and that Jesus is that suffering Messiah and that he rose from the dead, proving that he is the Messiah. And many Jewish people would believe. A lot of them would reject, but many believed. And then when he got kicked out of the synagogue, he would go into the city and he would share with the non-Jewish people uh, that Jesus is their savior. And he would share the gospel of how Jesus saved them from the consequences of their sin and raises them up to new life. And many non-Jewish people would believe in Jesus. And then, because Paul was turning the order of the city upside down, the leading people of the city would say, we got to get this guy out of here. We're losing our power in the synagogue and we're losing our power uh, in in, uh, the, the, the structure of the city. And so Paul would get kicked out of the city. Sometimes, one of the times, 
even stoned to the point where they left him for dead, right? They, they didn't like him because he was turning their world upside down with the gospel. And that's what the gospel does, by the way. It turns your world upside down. Now, when you come to a place, when you believe in Jesus, it's not just some small little thing that uh, happens on Sunday once in a while. It, your whole life is turned upside down. The order and way of who you are is very different. And so Paul would turn their life upside down and they'd boot him out. In this case, his time is noted for the miraculous. Uh, it's interesting that Luke, he, he doesn't record uh, people believing in Jesus. Uh, he doesn't record how Paul shared the gospel or how people responded to it. And I, I think you look at this and you go, well, sometimes the best thing to do is to help to heal and let God's power speak for itself. And, and I would say that's especially the case when there's a cultural barrier, a language barrier, or a generational barrier. Uh, when we go to the Czech Republic, there's a bit of a... There's a bit of a language barrier. A lot of the students speak English. I don't speak any Czech. Um, I can tell you good morning, Dobre dan, but other than that, I'm in trouble. Um, and so we're, we're counting on the, the English-speaking Czechs to be able to kind of interact. And, and so there's this language barrier, but what we do is we go into the schools during an exit tour. We go into the schools and we run a program and then we help them with their English class and we get to know the students and we understand their story. They're actually letting us practice hospitality in their school, serving them. Um, and then we we say, hey, there's an event today after school at a, at a local place, and we're going to have some food and some games and some music and some fun. You should come on down. And so we rent out a place in the community, and we practice hospitality with the students that are interested in seeking after spiritual things. And again, we get to know their names and their story, and they want to know about our story, and we share, right? And then on Friday night, we say, hey, there's a concert on Friday night. We want you to come to this thing. It's going to be really fun. Um, and what they do in the concert is they share the gospel in a way that makes a lot of sense to a Czech student um, in, uh, in their circumstances of life. And what we see at those things is many students respond to the gospel. And then what Josiah Venture and Kevin that will be here in a few weeks are so good at is they don't just say, yeah, you raised your hand. They say, now we're going to connect you to the local church so that you can continue to uh, journey down this path of discipleship and learn what it is to pattern your life after Jesus. And so it's a really cool thing. But it starts with hospitality. It starts with God's love. It starts with caring for people. And I think this is where we can't miss the point for us as individual Christians now, is that if you want to be impactful in someone's life, care about them. Uh, if you, if you want to make a difference in someone's life spiritually, love them. Know their story. Understand who they are. Sometimes who they are might be offensive to you. Get over it. Jesus hung out with people that were unsavory. Uh, they were the outcasts of society. And so don't allow that to, for, you to, for that to get in the way of you loving someone. When I was in the ER on Friday night, if you ever forget to pray for uh, hospital workers, just spend three hours in ER. Um, the people that came through the door, one, this mom walks through and her baby just has a big, bump on its forehead. And I, she's sharing that uh, one of her sibling, one of the baby siblings was holding the child and the mistake was made and the baby fell. And you can just kind of see the stress on this mom and doesn't want her baby to fall asleep because it probably had a concussion. I think I slept like 20 hours in two days. I, I didn't do the concussion thing right. But um, <laughs> rabbit trail. But anyway, you, you can just kind of like, this is an easy lady to pray for. I mean, I'm looking at what's going on. I, I even text Becky. I said, hey, this is what's happening. We, we, we prayed for her that night and for her child. The next person that walks to the door is a guy that um, he's, he, he has been 
drinking alcohol to the point that he was throwing up blood. And so he had to go to the ER. Um, and so the doctor's asking him questions, very, very pointed questions, getting to the bottom of the matter. And, you know, it's a lot easier to pray for the mom who's looking out for her baby than it is the alcoholic who's killing himself. But shouldn't we love both? And so there are things that might get in the way, but what I want you to understand is that if you're not experiencing the peace and power that comes from being a new creation in Christ, you won't share the life-giving message of Jesus. And even if you do, no one will listen because the truth is not evident in you. If, if I'm not resting in Christ, if I'm, not, if I'm not approaching my life from a place of his child, a new creation, indwelled by the Spirit of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, living in his presence, by his power, for his purpose, if that's not the place that I'm at and somebody guilts me into sharing the gospel, uh, it's not going to make a difference. Well, I mean, God could use it, but you're not going to be easy to listen to. Because if the power of God isn't evident in you, then the message is not likely to be heard. And so we know that Paul, he's wandering around, right? People are coming to him and he's, he's praying, he's healing. We know that what Paul's not going to do is go, look at me heal people, right? Paul's not going to do that. What he's going to do is he's going to go, it's the power of Jesus that just healed you. That's his pattern when these healings take place. When, when someone experiences the power of God through him, he doesn't boast. He points to Jesus and he shares that the life that you just received came from Christ. And so we know that each of these people would have had that opportunity to respond to Jesus. And because the power of Christ was evident in Paul, people would have listened. And so uh, what that question then becomes is, am I in that place where I'm resting in him, where my identity is in Christ, and the power that's seen through me isn't my own power, it's not my own strength, it's not my own ability, but it's actually the power of God through me. And then from that place of security in him and how he lays out my days, am I then giving people the opportunity to respond to this message that saved my life? And that's what Paul did while he was in Malta. Verse 11 says that he did it for three months. After three months, we set sail in an Alexandrian ship that had wintered at the island. The twin gods, uh, as its figurehead, the twin gods would have been Castor and Pollux. Those are sons of, of Zeus. It was believed that they would bring good luck to sailors if their constellation Gem Gemini excuse me, could be seen. So you can imagine a ship in a storm and they're looking up at, the, up at the clouds and say, oh, we saw the constellation Gemini. Castor and Pollux will protect us, right? Um, that was the idea behind this. Uh, verse 12, putting in at Syracuse, not New York, but a port city um, that was the center of government on the island of Sicily, they stayed three days. From there, after making a circuit along the coast, we reach, we, we reached Regium. Um, that's a uh, port on the toe of Italy. After one day, a south wind sprang up, and the second day, we came to Potili. There we found brothers and sisters who were invited, and were invited to stay with them a week. And so we came to Rome. 
Now, brothers and sisters from there had heard news about us and had come to meet us as far as Appius. That's a market town 43 miles from Rome. And the Three Taverns, which was a popular stopping point on the Appian Way about 33 miles from Rome. When Paul saw them, he thanked them and took courage. When he entered Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself, probably in a rented house, with a soldier who guarded him. So in this section, the, the great irony of this section is that the gods and economy of Rome carry the gospel of Jesus to Rome. That which is opposed to Jesus actually carries him to Rome. Uh, likely aboard an Alexandrian grain ship, Paul moves from Malta to Potili, which is a, the foremost Roman port for grain shipments, and then on to Rome. Uh, Rome depended upon grain from Africa and Egypt in particular in order for them to feed the people of, of Rome. Uh, the Rome, Rome at this point in time is about a million people. Um, even this city that they enter, Potili, is about 100,000 people. And so there's a lot of people living on the island more than uh, their, their agricultural resources can and support so grain from Africa was very important to them. But the question worth asking is can I spot the ways in which the gods of my culture can be hijacked to move the gospel of Jesus? Um, can, I, can I look at what my culture worships and actually use it as an open door for the gospel? Uh, and, and a great book for you to, to look at, um, Gods at War by Kyle Eidelman. And in this book, he breaks down the, the gods that are most prevalent in our society into three temples. You have the temple of pleasure, power, and love. Within that temple of pleasure is food, sex, and entertainment. Within the temple of power is success, money, and achievement. And in that temple of love is romance, family, and self. Um, and what's interesting is none of those things are inherently wrong. There's nothing wrong with enjoying food. Uh, God designed sex to be this amazing expression of unity between a husband and wife within a covenant marriage. There's nothing wrong with entertainment. There's nothing wrong with success, money, or achievement, romance. That's fine. Family is good. We should love our family. Uh, we should even have a good concept of ourselves. Not that we should worship ourselves, but we should have a good idea of ourself. But we could pick apart any one of these gods. I'll, I'll, I'll start with the god of self, worshiping the god of me. Uh, many times people often make their identity their god. Uh, we see this growing as a popular thing to do within our society. We make our identity our god. You'll hear this in philosophy. They'll talk about the sovereign self. And this is the means by which one can decide for themselves the direction of their life and the makeup of their identity. It's up to you. You determine the direction of your life and the makeup of your identity. This is fundamentally sinful as it robs our maker of his rightful, rightful place. The Christian knows that we are not sovereign, but that God is. We do not define ourselves. God does. We do not belong to ourselves, but we were bought with a price. You see, we're not sovereign selves, but servant selves, blessed to be children of God. Without that understanding of submission to God, we'll spend our lives fighting God rather than enjoying Him. We'll spend our lives fighting Him. No, the direction of my life is not, that's not the purpose of my life. The purpose of my life is for me to achieve. The purpose of my life is for me to experience. The purpose of my life is pleasure. The purpose of my... Well, see, we fight with God on that and we, then we don't get to enjoy who He is. 
My identity isn't in Christ. My identity is my sexuality. My identity isn't in Christ. My identity is my, my, my job title. My identity isn't in Christ. It's being an awesome mom. My identity in, isn't in Christ. It's in how I, how I achieve, right? One of those types of things. We, 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 we don't allow God to tell us who we are. And because of that, we fight with him. We don't allow God to determine the direction of our lives. And so we fight with him rather than enjoy him. And what the scripture teaches is that once we're in Christ, once we've made this decision to follow him, he gives us freedom both from the law and from the flesh, uh, but not by our own power. You see, our liberty lies not in our self-effort or self-expression. Rather, our liberty lies in our selfless surrender to his design. That's liberty. Liberty isn't doing what my desires are, because they'll own you. Liberty isn't doing what other people say I should do because then you're dependent upon what others say. What real liberty is, is understanding that I'm a, I'm a creation of God and because he's the creator and I'm a creation, I'm in no place to tell him what he should or shouldn't do with my life. That's Paul's argument in Romans chapter 9. What should the potter say to the clay? I get to choose who I am, right? Or the other way around. Should the clay say to the potter, I get to choose what you make me? No, we understand that God has made us. He designs us. He molds us. And when you'll submit to his design, you find that there's a tremendous amount of liberty. And so your society is screaming at you, telling you, you determine who you are. You pick the direction of your life. You do you. And the gospel is saying, nonsense. There's a creator who made you and loves you. And he has liberty for you in him, but it's liberty inside bounds where he says, this is what's good and what's right. This is what's moral and righteous. And the amazing thing is that what God does is he actually takes his righteous and he puts it on top of you. When you, when you enter into a relationship with Jesus, he takes his upright way of living and he says, I'm going to place it upon you. That's why when Christians enter into a relationship with Jesus but ignore his righteousness, it's a very uncomfortable place. Because he's saying, no, I will, you, the patterns of your life will change to match mine. And if that means difficulty, I'll bring difficulty. If I have to discipline you, I'll discipline you. It's way better to just say, God, you are the creator. I am the creation. Mold me. That's what true liberty is. To be in the hands of our maker and cared for in ways that we could never care for ourselves. To be in the hands of our maker and be changed in our character in ways that we could never figure out on our own. That's righteousness. Let me pick apart one other God of our society, and that's achievement. This is the God of the proud. Um, these are people whose lives are stand out. They stand out from society because they've climbed the ladder. They've overcome the obstacles. They've made a name for themselves. They build their very own towers of Babel to and for the applause of their peers. They don't care if God approves or not because God has never really entered their decision-making process. And the Romans fit this description. When Paul entered the port of Patili, it was magnificent. Its harbor was greatly enhanced in the first century with the construction of a breakwater. And this breakwater was nearly a quarter mile in length. It had 15 masonry piers with arches, at least one triumphal arch, columns with statues, and a lighthouse. 
The total amount of the shoreline for the docking and warehouses extended about one and a quarter miles. When people entered the harbor, they knew the power, might, wealth, and achievement of Rome. Guess how much of that's around today? You can see remnants, but the splendor is gone. And that's the way it is with all human achievement, fading. See, it doesn't matter what you're building, it won't be around in 500 years and no one will remember your name. To make matters worse, give your family just four or five generations and even your kin won't remember your name. Do you know the name of your great-great-grandparents? Maybe you do. Do you know anything about them? Maybe. Whatever you create, it won't last. Even what you procreate will forget you. But God will never forget your name. He will never forget the efforts of your life, and he calls you to build his kingdom. He calls you to a living and everlasting relationship with him through the death and resurrection of his son Jesus. And so the question is, will you belong to him? Will you surrender to his authority in your life? Will you call yourself his child and rest in his grace? Will you commit your life to the eternal God who longs to share his riches to you, with you? That's a question that each of us faces. Now, Paul had made this decision very clearly, right? The pattern of his life was for the glory of God and for people to know Christ. So much so that when he said to live is Christ and to die is gain, it was not just some statement on a card. He meant it. To live was Christ. To live was to say that the pattern of my life and the decisions that I make in life are to allow God's sovereign hand to guide me. And if he guides me uh, to, to Jerusalem to, to come under persecution, then I'll go there. If he guides me to Rome uh, to be killed by Nero, I'll go there. Whatever it is that God puts in front of me, I'll do it. His hand guides and I'm not going to fight it. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Because did you know that this world is not patterned to prevent suffering? This world is not set up to prevent suffering. But there is a promise of a world to come. A new heavens and a new earth where there is no more crying. There are no more tears. There is no more death. And in that place, the, the world, the new heavens and the new earth are patterned. Set up so that there's no suffering. So to live is Christ and to die is gain. But before you can say that, you have to really believe who God says you are. Before you can say that, you have to really know you're secure in him. And so for those of you who are burdening, burdening yourself with are you doing enough for God, listen to this. Focusing too much on what we do can cause us to lose sight of who we are. Being precedes doing, and as such, we must grab a hold of our identity as God's children and his ambassadors first. From there, we begin to see the world and people in it through God's eyes. Then, and only then, are we really free to live at peace and make the most of our days. Following Jesus isn't so much about frantic urgency as it is being united to God's sovereign symphony of our lives. See, he's not worried about you 
keeping your nose to the grindstone and working as hard as you can and making sure you impress other people. You, you read the Gospels and did Jesus look stressed out? Did, did he strike you as somebody who was weighed down? Or did he know that he was the son? Did he know his father was good? Did he know that the spirit was with him and empowering him? Did he strike you as somebody that was worried and weighed down? See, he calls us to live in his patterns of life. And so as we live in his patterns of life, we, we don't, it's not about stress. It's about trusting that there is a good God who is your father, who's made you his child and his power and his presence. His purpose is always with you and he's guiding the direction of your days so that as he lays out good work in front of you, you're saying, Father, what do you have for me today? How can I live your life today? And then he blesses you with his power and then he guides you into the good works that are in front of you. He leads you to see the hurting for those who need compassion. He, he causes you to order your finances in a way that you wouldn't do otherwise. You'd save it up for yourself, but he says, I'm, or you'd spend it on yourself, but he says, I'm going to have you use these things for something that lasts into eternity. And so as we go, we make disciples. We understand our culture and we make disciples. As we encounter the oddities of life, we make disciples. As we go to school, hang out with our friends, love our spouse, raise our children, work our job, coach a sports team, go shopping, spend a vacation, live in retirement, walk around the neighborhood, and so on, we make disciples. God's presence, his power, and his purpose, they, they, they never leave us. And so we're called to live in that place of peace and share his life-giving son who we call our Lord Jesus. That's what we're called to. Paul provides an example within the pages of scripture. And so God is inviting you into steps of faith. Maybe your identity is wrapped around something other than who he says you are. Maybe it's something that somebody did to you in your past. You can't let go of the fact that someone hurt you and your, your identity is, is as the abused. Look, that's, it happened to you. It's real, but it's not your identity. God has more for you than that. Maybe your identity is in your, your sexuality and, and your society is screaming at you to go and practice whatever it is that feels good to your flesh. That's a horrible identity. Anybody that tells you to embrace the desires of your flesh is a bad voice to listen to. God has much higher ways of living for us than a fallen flesh. And so wrap your identity around who he says you are. And then look at your days, not as something to be stressed out about and, oh no, what's going to happen tomorrow? But instead, God, your hand is controlling the destination of, of all of human history, but in particularly my life, uh, in particularly your life. God's hand is guiding your life. And so whatever it is, whatever season he has you in, he has you there for a purpose and he's going to guide that into a place where he will use you for something that is eternal and that is his kingdom. 
You get to be a part of something that will never fade and never die. Lord Jesus, we, we thank you that you have died for our sins. Father, we thank you that you sent your son, Jesus, to die on our, our behalf on a cross, to take away sin once and for all. The consequences of sin, the penalty of sin are dealt with. The power of sin no longer guides my life. And Lord, how we long for that day when you return and bring about a place where the presence of sin is also eradicated. But God, we know this earth that we live in, it is not designed to prevent suffering. Evil is still having its way in many ways. You you squash it, you prevent it. Most importantly, God, you kill it in me. And so above all else, as individual Christians, may we be known as places where righteousness and goodness dwell, that we are dispensers of grace, that evil has been squashed in us and we are no longer bound to sin but are freed from it to live a life in liberty where we know you as our Father. We know you as the lover of our souls that your hand is guiding each and every one of our days and that we can rest in that place. And as we rest in you, God, you give us great purpose and work to do as we share the glory of your son, Jesus, and his name and his gospel with the world around us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you want to have a conversation about that, I would love to talk to you. Josh would love to talk to you. Um, if you want to know what it is to take next steps in your faith, um, we're here and we, we'd love to help you with that. Have a great week and um, we'll see you next Sunday. Thanks for tuning in and joining us today. We really hope that this message encourages you to continue taking steps towards seeking and understanding God's truth. We also hope that you're able to join us again next week as we continue studying the powerful truths that God has revealed to us in the book of Acts. The dream is that Hilltop is a home for the growing family of God, and we are so glad that you are a part of the family.